Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. John Williams, who's an assistant professor at the University of Canberra down in Australia. Um, today, we're discussing the article titled, The Role of Teacher-Educator Professional Learning in Reconfiguring Physical Education. Uh, it was recently published in the Curric uh, Curriculum Perspectives Journal. Um, you can find the full site of this article in the notes. Uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Russell. Thanks for inviting me onto your program. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, I was interested to read this paper because it is about kind of your journey going through as a teacher educator, and we share that in common there. So, I, I wanted to see because you, you talked about wanting to learn and apply multidisciplinary knowledge to reflect on your own professional learning journey in Pete. So can you kind of give us a background or an overview of what led you to, you know, starting the study and writing this manuscript? Yeah, well, the thing that kind of started this off was uh, like, like you and like many of my colleagues um, and, and teachers generally, we, we teach things that are not always in our subject area. And basically, I was faced with a new unit as part of our uh, new course or new suite of degree programs that were introduced in 2016. I was faced with a unit which was called, is called Social Cultural Foundations and Health and PE. And although it, the title implies that it's a social, a sociological type of approach for that subject, that's only one part of it. And the subject, in fact, involves looking at PE in particular, but health and PE, but mainly health, mainly physical education through multiple disciplinary lenses. And these include, as I mentioned, sociology, history, philosophy, uh, but then it switches um, halfway through to sport and exercise science lenses, including biomechanics, physiology, psychology, neurology. So that there's a really diverse range of uh, discipline knowledge required for teaching a unit. And as a, as a conscientious teacher educator, which looking at the people in my networks and, and yourself as well, we tend to be really conscientious about what we do. So it really sparked me to then learn more about the, the, the human movement science knowledge, which I don't have or didn't have as a, as a sociologist. Yeah. And, and it seems like that's a lot of, lot of content to teach in, in a single class. Um, but in, in the paper, you present the sociocultural perspectives in HPE. So for people who are reading the paper, that's the table one, and it discusses the evolving nature of PE teaching. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on how the characteristics and teaching requirements brought in these, quote, new times uh, lead to the need for ongoing professional learning in PE settings. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think that you're right. Well, I'll go back to what you said, first of all, about it being a, as a lot of content you're teaching in a 40-hour unit. I, I agree 100% with that. And one of the one of the things I've had to do is is um, dilute that content in such a way for it to be meaningful. Maybe dilute is not the best word, but certainly to to frame that content in such a way that it's meaningful for the students. So that's why uh, if you look at the unit uh, descriptor, it's more about PE than it is health. So that's one way that I was able to, I guess, target and make most use of the, the hours that I had to teach units. So the health health is taught. And other units a lot, a lot more deeply. Um, so basically, when 
the, the reason that our units kind of come about, I suppose, is that the health and the assurance curriculum of health and PE is underpinned by Arnold's ideas of in through and about movement, which uh, interestingly Arnold was actually one of our lecturers at where I studied in Edinburgh uh, uh, when I did my undergraduate courses, although I never was taught by him. Uh, but oh, wow. he was certainly there, and it's interesting that um, I've got that sort of uh, indirect connection. Um, but in through and about PE requires that PE is taught in broad ways using the kind of disciplinary approaches that are mentioned in the unit, especially in the about PE, the way that we study PE. So it, it had and has a lot of connection to the current Australian curriculum of health and PE um, to get our student teachers to think about teaching PE in really broad ways. But I really wanted um, to be able to, to um, give them the experience and quality of experience that was really required for them to engage in this content. Because I think had I not done that, then they would have um, just reverted back to what they knew PE or uh, as, as students typically do. You know, PE is a very narrow kind of focus about teaching um, through a performance discourse as much as anything and about really valuing sport and having a, a really strong predisposition to teaching sport and sport equating to PE. So that's kind of, that's where all that kind of uh, links, I suppose, about about how the unit came to be. And yes, to be honest, I, I, I haven't taught it now for five years. I'm really pleased about how we teach it and also um, how important it is. I'm absolutely sold on the idea that it's really important as a unit. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you did an autoethnography as a part of this. So I'm yeah. wondering, can you, can you explain what that is for people who don't know what that is and how you used it in, in this study? Yeah, of course. So autoethnography is um, a qualitative approach and it's something that kind of tied in a lot. I, I would call myself a sociologist and in particular a figurationalist because of the kind of sociology that I use and I use it in most of my writing. I find it, I find it um, very uh, applicable to is because of the sub-theories involved. But autoethnography was a, it kind of fitted, I guess, with me in terms of, uh, of telling a story in a reflexive way to help other people um, who are faced with similar kind of situations and how how my journey, I suppose, how that kind of um, can help other people as well. And and a big part of that, I think, uh, is also uh, uh, the fact that uh, your story is unique to yourself. It's your own truth, and that's part of autobiography. It doesn't have to be an objective truth. There is truth um, to your, as far as you understand it to be. And part of that is also talking about your own vulnerability, and I think it's something that, Interestingly, or curiously, I think that teachers and teacher educators tend not to talk about their vulnerability. They become very um, skilled performers uh, in terms of um, making, in terms of delivering a performance. Is what I mean. Uh, whether in, in a classroom, talking to any teacher, they're really they're really good at covering up their own uh, shortfalls and their own vulnerabilities. And I, I thought that was something I wanted to talk about uh, and bring that into the open because I think it's healthy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a healthy thing to do rather than pretend all the time that, yeah, we're experts everything when it's not true. And I think it gives um, our beginning teachers in particular a false idea about where that bar is, that the bar is much higher than it seems than what it actually is. And I think I think to come clean as someone who's uh, mid-career and uh, more towards the end of a career in many respects, but I think that 
I've come to the realisation that it's healthier to, to not pretend to know everything and to try and be honest about that. And I think I think the students will appreciate when you do that. So yeah, basically, auto-authorities are way of telling your own story as a qualitative approach. It's, it's, it's pretty well established and it's actually got um, a pretty kind of um, rigorous framework within which it's used um so it's basically, yeah, what I've said there is using uh, as a qualitative approach um, about um, framing your own story yeah. according yeah. to your own truth. Yeah, so, and it's, yeah. it's interesting because you you do this study and you talk about your own story, which may be very specific to you, but you're also very vulnerable. I mean, you publish this in a peer-reviewed journal for everybody to read about your struggles and successes in and, and teaching and I think that is a great way to kind of like you said like explain where the bar is and explain kind of what reality is instead of the facade that some people might think is 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 occurring as a first year fifth year tenth year twentieth year um, you know teacher so um, I'm I'm curious yeah what can you kind of explain like the methods of the study? Like, what did you actually do? How did you gather the data for, for this paper? Sure. Before the answer, I'll just go back because you made me think about something else. Actually, it was at an ASPR conference or student council LP and recreation, uh, which is, I'm a member and I'm also a board director at the moment, national board director for ASPR as our professional association for uh, HPE teachers in Australia. Um, and one of, one of the conferences, I think it was the International Conference back in 2019, when I was starting to kind of put this paper together, or the ideas of it, I mentioned I did a seminar about it, and there was a whole lot of HP practitioners with a whole lot of uh, experience, both uh, teachers and academics. I said to them, I said, how many of you could teach this unit, do you think? And I gave them what I've described, the, the whole idea of a different disciplinary lens every week, from human movement to sociology, philosophy, and so on. And there was nobody in that room who said they'd be happy teaching that unit. Some of them could uh, teach the human movement side of things, and typically others could teach maybe the social science aspects, yeah. but not both. So I think I think coming Queensway good opens up that kind of uh, dialogue. Um, to answer your question, though, in terms of method, so so you can use autoethnography in different ways. For me, I kept a diary of doing this human movement postgraduate, which is what the, the paper's about that to become a, a better, more informed educator, I had the opportunity that I could do a post-grad course and I was able to do that at own university. They came with paid for the fees and, and I just attended it. Um, so that's the way that I did it. I used um, a diary as my data question to write down my own um, um, experiences, memories, um, or uh, documenting at the time how I felt. And then, as part of that process, I used um, identified from that, that that diary with the help of my co-author, who I haven't spoken about, Dr. Michael Davis, um, who's an emerging academic and in, in PE teacher education or HP teacher education, and he's um, an unplanned outcome of this study was that uh, Michael ended up ended up joining the, our team in health and PE, um, which is an interesting kind of uh, aspect to this. But to go back to the methodology all ties together um, from my diaries identify critical incidents so these are kind of aha moments uh, that really kind of uh, stand out as as um, as uh, parts of my journey which uh, are of interest to me but could also be of 
interested in the wider readership. And from these, uh, I think I've identified five in the paper, and from those, what I did was um, my extracts from the diary were those critical incidents, and I used my academic voice to then, or our academic voice, Michael's as well, to interpret and understand a bit more about about what those critical incidents meant. And in doing that, we used uh, figurational sociology and also the literature to unpack each of these critical incidents in terms of the broader literature and also with the figurational theory to unpack what they meant. So that's, that's basically, I guess, in a nutshell, the, the methodology that was used here. Yeah. Uh, but autonomy can also be memories as well. Uh, it doesn't need to be, uh, for example, it doesn't need to be diary extracts. That's the way that I did it. So I would actually sit in lectures and workshops, and I would, especially in lectures, and I'd write down how I felt about the experience of being in that lecture. Uh, and I just, I would just use it as a dumping ground of my feelings, thoughts um, about that moment in time. Yeah. So. It's it's interesting because we've had we've had different people and different types of studies on this podcast over the last like two hundred episodes that we've done this, and and so where would you like if you look at because I I could see this being done as a self study I could see this being done as a yeah. action research study and an auto ethnography yeah. kind of so how do you feel like. Like what? What was the background of like you choosing autoethnography instead of saying I'm just going to do an action research study, and and report yeah. on that or a self study? Like, what did you ever go through that like thought process in your head? Because I'm I'm trying to figure this out because, you know, I'm I'm new to self study. I've done like one that I haven't analyzed fully yet. I I have my students do action research studies, and so this seems so similar to it. So. Where do you feel like that kind of fits in? Yeah, it's a really good point, Bristol, and it's something that I've come to learn myself. And it's um, so the way I understand it is it's self study. I've written a couple of self study papers as well since doing this one. And self study is more of an overarching umbrella under which you've got things like autoethnography, you've got action research. I think self studies are much more fluid concept and a, a lot less um, steeped in. Tradition compared to autoethnography. So autoethnography is a lot more, I guess, kind of structured, um, and there's, there's a, a much greater, I think, uh, in my experience, there's a lot more uh, writing and, and publications and scholarly articles to do with autoethnography. Like it's got a much, it's a much more, uh, it's a much stricter framework than what self-study is, and I, I see autoethnography coming under. The auspices of self-study. Yeah. So yes, um, that's the way I would frame it. If that helps, I mean, it's. Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot easier to write about self-study than it is about autoethnography. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like everybody's doing self-study these days, <laughs> and and I think it, it's interesting because I think uh, I think it was Tim Fletcher has this new book out on self-study and physical education, and and I looked. That's right. And I looked at like all these different studies coming out and. And I think it has to be that, you know, we're, we're so pressured to publish. So you're trying to piece together your, your, your teaching and your research together. And if you can kind of hit two birds, one stone kind of idea. And I think that that has pushed a lot because you can kind of continuously go through and do a self-study. And for a lot of self-studies, it's a very easy IRB to get. You're not getting consent from students. And so... 
uh, I feel like it's it's interesting that this this phenomenon has has gotten a lot more popular in in our field. Um, yeah, yeah, and that that book I've actually read the book from start to finish, and um, because I wanted to deepen one understanding about about um, about self study, and I've, I've actually gone more towards writing about self study and autoethnography for the reasons that you mentioned. So you're absolutely right, and I think. I really enjoyed reading that book because um, the diversity of experiences people wrote about in the edited book um, about their own journeys in, in teacher education, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you read it and you get a real sense of the emotion that people feel and, and the time pressure, as you just mentioned, there, the kind of things that you can often suffer by closing your door and you're thinking it's just me that's, that's um, having this, this constant tension of um, pressure to publish and teach and all the multidiscipline things that we do and the fact we have to multitask as teacher educators. And I think that when you read about other people experiencing the same thing and how we can learn from each other, I think it's really rich. And I think it's not just in, in um, health and PE teaching, but in all aspects of teacher education, I think it's just such a, a fantastic um, mechanism through which we can level with our students and you know, talk about, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm not from Australia, obviously, I'm Scottish, and I'm not going to be that expert about cricket or about AFL, and I'm not going to be putting myself under the pressure to, to uh, you know, stand and do a, a technical skills performance off that, because I've, I've not got the background, I can't possibly do that. That isn't a cop-out. I can then uh, use, and this is a strength-based approach, I guess, use people around me in my class, um, for example, to then have a, a teaching framework um, that's contemporary in which we can use the knowledge that people in my class have got. And, I, and, I, and that's, that's my kind of point here. And this idea of in, through and about um, is something we've done with athletics, for example. Uh, we've run a, a really successful workshop um, um, as a related unit to this unit where you know we, we cover things like social cultural aspects of race, uh, gender, uh, class, looking at things like drug taking, and we do that workshop around another part of the room. We've got athletics um, coaches, high-level coaches, teaching our students how to do uh, jumping, running, and throwing. At the same time, we're learning about the things I just mentioned from a social cultural perspective. Then we're bringing a human movement performance lens where we're measuring acceleration using. Uh, you know, sprinting, for example. So what, what we're doing is um, through that process of using athletics as a vehicle, the students are learning about data collection, they're learning about, you can even bring psychology into that mix, but we can actually bring an athletics lesson to life. And, and I guess without diversifying too much, if you look at something like throwing, for example, implements, discus, javelin and shot putt, um, you know, these things are often taught in very boring repetitive ways where you can't blame the students for not being interested but all they may right. do is throw an implement, mark it, measure it, record it and they do that year after year and often only from a standing throw as well and I think that of course we're constrained by you know like space and numbers and so on about what we can do but what I like about the kind of stuff that I've learned if you like in this unit uh, and then this journey is that you can teach P in much more uh, much richer ways. An example actually given here in the paper is from uh, about biomechanics, about how um, a student, because one of the things you do in um, 
one of the things we did here was use some of the quality the data from students in there uh, with, with ethics permission with uh, uh, talking about uh, their experience of, of the units. And one of the students said that by buying the canines class was boring. And, um, and I remember I remember the, the person saying it, and I, and I can laugh about it now, but it's the fact that um, I was able to change that by learning about biomechanics and how, about how to apply it in a PE teaching um, situation. And again, this is quite different from certainly in Australia where uh, uh, human movement science, when it's taught in schools, is taught as a separate thing, mm-hmm. as a subject, and there's a lesser tendency to use it in our actual teaching. So that's what I learned um, by doing that grad cert. Um, I learned how other people taught um, who are non-HPE teachers, been your lectures, other other educators, and I took some of that into my own teaching, and I also enriched um, my own units by taking that knowledge and applying it in a PE context. Yeah, yeah, and that, we've had similar issues in at Mason before that there were specific like biomechanics courses that they were taking, but it didn't relate to anything about teaching PE. So the examples were not relevant, and and so I, we've. We've changed that, and here in Virginia, at least in the current standards that are getting revised right now, there's a huge focus on biomechanics. Um, like a whole strand of uh, of one of the standards is about biomechanical or the, the ways of moving, and teachers struggle with it because they remember back, yeah. like, well, I took that one biomechanics course in undergraduate 15 years ago. How how am I supposed to you know, implement this. So I think different countries, same, same, similar issues. Um, but let me, I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Let, sure me, let me move on to the kind of results of your study. I really liked the structure you presented your discussion. So if, if you're reading the paper, you'll see that there's like a self voice and then an academic voice. And I, I guess it would be great if you could walk us through the main reflections brought uh, in the article. And so maybe, we can start with you presenting yourself as a, a mature student. Yeah, so I mean, I think this was, um, yeah, I, I just, I kind of love this stuff. I think, um, you know, the kind of immersing yourself is, is, is um, a big part of what autoethnography is as well. And, you know, sitting in the, in the lectures, I was very um, aware of my age. So I'm in my late 50s and I was sitting with, um, mainly youngsters, because the way the unit works is you have uh, undergraduate and postgraduate in the same in the same units of study. We just have different assessment items as a postgrad, but the content is the same, and it was really a lot of content, um, to be honest, compared to probably what we do in education courses, typically. Um, and I felt, I felt really quite vulnerable in that situation, especially when I was sitting beside um, one student, undergrad, who had actually taught I taught this person as a kid when they were at school hmm. um, in my PE class, and now I was sitting with him, and yeah. he was actually getting higher scores or higher <laughs> marks than me. So that was, you know, a set, it was that sense of, you know what, we don't know everything. And, and it was a really, for me, I was going back to learn about the cell and learn about biology and, and science um, that I hadn't done since I was at high school. And it was like, um, that, that for me, I found. I found it um, really quite hard as a mature student. You look around over 100 people in the lecture and you see very few people your age. Yeah. And I think that was, um, for me, it was a very, a very raw kind of feeling, I guess. And also not being able to keep up 
with uh, some of the content as well to work really hard and one time to try and stay on top of it all. It was, it was really challenging. Yeah, and, and I guess the second part, you talked about feeling stressed with time management. I mean, were you, were you full on, like you were teaching full time and you were taking this class, is that right? Yeah, I was teaching full time. I was taking um, four units, um, four units over two years. And I was also researching um, in my job as a researcher as well. And I had, at the time, my kids were pretty young too. So, yeah, like I was I was really stressed by it. Um, and when you when that, you look at my academic voice there, or our academic voice to interpret uh, what's happening, by reading the literature, you then find out that actually what I felt is pretty common for mature students and you know we had a discussion off here as well about the kind of pressures you have and, and the kind of inner lives as well and you know I think that helps as well when you, you look at the literature in relation to it and you unpack it a bit as well it kind of starts to make sense and it gives you insights into into your experiences. Yeah and, and you talked about some new teaching approaches that you were seeing like kind of uh, one of the things was useful general pedagogical knowledge, like uh, something on YouTube or something like that. So were you were you yeah, picking up right. things so, that you were using in then your future classes from this? Yeah, so the, this is where I was able to use figurational sociology, for example, where um, it's based, it's really um, Norbert Elias, uh, one of the uh, classical 20th century sociologists that pioneered Figurational or, or process sociology, and, and what he talks about is that all human action or endeavour has uh, unplanned outcomes. So one of the things about an unplanned outcome, my motivation for doing the graduate certificate and the four units was to learn about uh, content knowledge, to learn about anatomy, physiology, biomechanics to help me with my teaching. But an unplanned outcome from doing that, something that I hadn't intended to happen, was I learned about uh, teaching approaches that um, that were used, and I gave some examples in this here, right? YouTube clips um, of um, not not uh, when I say YouTube clips, I mean uh, where uh, the, the academic staff did things like uh, they would do a, a short clip about uh, different parts of the bone, uh, what different parts of the bone bone were called, and they'd hold the bone up, and they would point out different features on the bone. And I thought, wow, how, how good is that as, as, as having a very um, short instructional type YouTube clip that you can have in your own classes. Even things like the way they structured lessons where they had uh, learning outcomes and, you know, what you need to know to pass the unit. It was very uh, well organised and very well structured. And I think some of that structure is what I've taken from one classes and I've adopted it from one context. So that, that, was, that was more about the pedagogy of... Um, of the the educators teaching that human movement that I've learned to use in one uh, classes. So that was an example of that. And that was something that, that I spoke about in their academic voices. Yeah, and, and the next one you talked about was about how you you started growing confidence in the, in the further units. I know in, in the beginning you talked about kind of like being feeling vulnerable. And can you talk about how and why you felt like you grew confident? Yeah, and it's something that um, coincidentally came up last week. I was involved in um, giving some feedback as a, a senior fellow for higher education um, academy in the UK. And 
that professional association for teacher educators and um, something I noticed was um, when I was talking, sorry, I was invited to give feedback to some beginning teacher educators again in the kind of human movement science type area and, you know, um, what I was saying is, um, to them was, you know, it's like uh, it's like learning a new language in some ways and, and you have to work it out. So, uh, having come from an English-based discipline, sociology, mainly history and a bit of philosophy, the way you do assignments and the way you structure things and learn your craft over time, then when you shift to learn something from scratch that you've not done for 30 years to do with physics, biology and human movement, it's like learning a new language. So for me, um, it was literally like learning, uh, I don't know, French or Spanish or something like that, where I had to learn when I started doing those units in the graduate certificate to learn um, how how you actually uh, did well in those subjects, how uh, strategies to be effective. And over time, I learned um, how to do that. And you become, it's not just, excuse me, not just learning content, it's about learning um, how to how to do well in the subject and how to pass assignments and so on. And it's, like, it's a completely different way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how my confidence grew the over time the trial and error and talking to other people, uh, especially lecturers who I knew uh, as as colleagues, and I felt I could approach them probably more so than what uh, the students could because I could talk to them after the class. So that's how my confidence developed, I would say, over time, um, just by that trial and error and learning new ways of doing things. Yeah, and and you talked about linking your professional learning to past experience, and you have some quotes here about you kind of remembering back to your high school physics class. And and so can you talk about how those two kind of like professional learning you were doing now and how it linked to uh, you growing up or any other past experiences? Yeah, sure. So one of the things um, I talk about um, as part, or we talk about as part of our, um, our theoretical framework, figuration sociology is about habitus. So habitus is a term coined by Pierre Bourdieu, but it was actually, and most people probably don't realise, is um, Norbert Elias was using the term habitus before Bourdieu, and it's, it's well documented. But um, my, my, certainly my habitus, my uh, predisposition to behave in a certain way, or my, uh, in very broad terms, my personality makeup was um, certainly, when I was at school, was... Um, was similar doing English, maths and science because um, that was growing up in Scotland in the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, that was something that it was really pushed out of school. So for me, um, I, I found physics quite hard, but I actually did okay at it. I persevered with it. I remember um, I left school um, not having done well with physics, but I went on to do further education and I did well, probably better connection with the teacher and so on. But um, but I did do quite well with it. So when I was uh, doing biomechanics um, in this graduate certificate, I was able to reflect back to my childhood and, and have some confidence from knowing that I was actually able to do it by then. And yeah, of course, I felt a bit rusty and everything else after whatever it was, 30 years. But, um, but certainly it gave me a bit of um, confidence that I'd be able to do it because I'd been successful before. And I think we make some uh, connections in the literature to that as well about that uh, uh, kind of uh, building on your previous successes and, and trying to take some some uh, confidence from that. Yeah, and and the next one that you talked about was your continuing growth in self confidence. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
and the continuing growth in self-confidence, I think, was was partly to do with being strategic because the most difficult unit, um, I didn't do this, I didn't choose that on purpose, but it was anatomy and physiology and um, it was regional anatomy and physiology and, I, and I was, for me that was really full on. It was real biological science which, uh, and a lot of uh, rote learning as well, which again is very different from what I'm used to. So I started off with that unit um, and then my maths gradually get better with my next unit, which, which was systemic anatomy and physiology. But then I knew that I was then moving towards stuff that was more familiar with uh, biomechanics and psychology. And of course, psychology is uh, very similar in many respects to sociology in terms of um, the kind of learning to do with um, way more kind of text, reading text, and um, less, I guess, kind of fixed uh, perspectives of uh, natural sciences. So I think for me, um, my confidence, I knew that if I just kept going a bit longer with um, the kind of biolog- biological natural sciences, I was going to get into terrain, it was going to be a bit more uh, linked to my, my own background and habitus. So that definitely led to my confidence improving. Yeah. And and so the last part, which, which is interesting, we talked about uh, before we started the podcast about, you know, your your daughter who who's very athletic and sporty and you you link this your your self belief and linking your learning and professional learning to life outside of the university so can you explain how you kind of made that connection yeah. and what that was yeah sure so i mean i think um, it's uh, a sad fact of life i think for for us that are involved in our area yourself as well rest i'm sure but um we sort of live and breathe uh, what we're doing. It's something that I noticed in that self-study book you mentioned with Tim Fletcher that, you know, people were talking about things like going to the gym and at the gym they were thinking about the next, uh, in their own time and they're doing their own, you know, kind of uh, fitness. They're thinking about uh, the next lecture and how they're going to do that and, and how how our work transfers into a life. And, and I'm sure you can relate to other people listening. You're driving in the car and you're planning the next lesson or you're planning the research you're about to carry out. And, you know, you can't really separate it from most of us. And for me, I could see where the biomechanics could be advantageous to my daughter, who's, uh, you know, like a, she's a ski racer. And, you know, I was able to use some of that. And in fact, um, one of the things I do at the moment is I, I coach, um, I coach uh, Alpine racing. And um, I've been able to help some of the, the coaches that work beside about using uh, psychology, in fact, about motivational theory, but also bringing in some of the biomechanics as well. And just in the same way that we use it in PE, all those different disciplines, we can use it in coaching as well. Like they said, there's a lot of similarities, but yeah, certainly transferability to my, my kids and trying to help them and uh, help them get more from their sports. So, yeah, there's definitely, um, I think, certainly for me, my mind races um, about. When I wake up in the morning, I think about all these different things. Uh, I can feel my brain firing uh, right away and uh, reading and trying to apply things and work things out. And it's interesting what you said earlier about how in um, universities often those things are taught, with biomechanics is taught separately, there's not a connection with PE or with physical education. And I think that one thing I'm aware of, and it comes again from taking racial sociology by Elias, talking about the fact that we need to be careful that we don't, um, we're not too involved in a subject that our students, um, uh, they were too close to. And, and what we end up doing is um, 
being this great role model for our students. We want to try and encourage our students to think for themselves and to problem solve and make the kind of connections that we've talked about here. And, you know, to me, that's 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 education. It's a bit ironic um, in some ways that uh, role learning that we talk about and, and um, some of those kind of uh, natural sciences that, you know, what I think what we should be doing as teachers, and this is, again, from Norbert Elias's work, is um, getting our students to think about making their own connections and working things out from this, from this for themselves. And, you know, I think we spoke a bit about, a, a bit about this off air in our own context about this this kind of problem-solving type idea. And I, I think I'm aware that we're moving away from that a lot. And, but our students are looking at us uh, to give them every single piece of information, every detail that they need to do well and, and uh, I feel sometimes the more that we give them the more they, they expect from us as well so so I think I think that's been interesting for me as well as part of this journey too yeah and and I think it's uh, you know I, as a teacher that's what you want you want your students to make that connection outside of the classroom so it's interesting that you you brought this up I mean that's you look at certain curriculum models they, they talk about we want transfer you look at tactical games you want transfer yeah. to another sport you want you know tpsr transfer to outside of yep. the gym and and you're doing that in this and and i thought it was it was great yep. that you were you're putting that together and i think part of that you know probably comes down to you being a mature student having life experiences not just i've always been in school i went to you know K to 12 school and then all of a sudden I'm in university and you're always inside that bubble versus coming into and I and I see this with my students is there are students who come back their second career or their career changers um, or they just taken a long time to get into finishing their teaching degree they have so much more life experience to kind of you know situate their learning in versus somebody that just came in as an 18 year old and they're going to university um so i've i found that yeah. interesting I, I think you're right there's certainly something there i think that you have less confidence as well as a as a as a young undergraduate a lot of this the, the students tend to be that that kind of way and you only think about um getting through their degree and they, they think about what they need to learn and know and is to sit tend to see things in very kind of narrow ways. I think it's also your personality is important as well about if you're of the kind of personality where you're quite driven and you want to be making things better. And I think I think undergraduates don't see it that way. I think they just see it as getting to the degree, not necessarily being agents of change. And I think that's maybe quite a hard concept for them. But the other thing that's interesting as well, I think, is if you look at um, how we teach PE and you look at traditional technical uh, and PE sport techniques type approaches where, you know, you look at kids and, you know, if you, if you value your performance, this course I mentioned before, where the kids that do well in your class are the ones who um, can jump the highest, run the fastest, or throw the furthest. And that's how, as you know, historically we've taught PE. And, you know, interestingly, I quote uh, a good friend of mine and colleague, um, Dr. Shane Pillar at uh, University of Flinders, or Flinders University, and he talks about the irony of the fact that the kids that do well in that model are the ones who um, are not learning that from what they do at school, it's what they do outside of school. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, by 
by teaching PE and those kind of broad ways and, and sorry, back to the transferability, if you can, well, I'm a big uh, proponent of TPSR, for example, that you mentioned there, and it's something that we're really, we're really keen in promoting in our university with the teachers. But if you look at transferability in TPSR, you know, about why kids should be respectful uh, and show, use manners and things like that. I mean, how that helps in broader society. I mean, that's where, that's where the greatest traction, I think, is in a subject about the transferability. And if you can get kids to look beyond um, the performance discourse, it's so important, but it's quite difficult for our students to sometimes grasp that because, to be fair, I think they do. Um, but it's a challenge because they come in with a habitus where they value sport and in order to give again to think about things in a much different way about how we teach PE through these different lenses we've talked about today, but also in terms of um, understanding PE has been much broader than just um, performance discourse. And I think that um, that's been a really part, important part of my journey as well about, about looking at that uh, transferability in, in the classroom. Like it's, and I really worry as well, to be honest, with, with um, the review of the showing frequently open PE at the moment that some of that broader learning is going to be lost and we revert back to what a lot of um, teachers think uh, physical education is about in a very narrow way about, about just improvement. Yeah. So I'm hoping that that won't happen, but yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I should just add, sorry, sorry, I meant to say Bristol with that as well, that Elias talks about in 1971, I think, as he talks about the fact that the thing that PE can offer the most is what he calls citizenship uh, values about um, basically about the broader um, uh, through PE about learning about uh, how we interact with others and how we um, can have what he calls soldierly values um, about um, upholding um, appropriate behaviour and um, and so on that you know basically is part of TPSR. So there's some interesting crossovers there as well. So in, in kind of like moving towards the end of the paper, how, how did completing the professional learning facilitate your engagement in innovative practice? It basically was in several ways in terms of what I expected to get from it. So basically um, having that um, rich kind of um, foundational knowledge about anatomy, physiology, biomechanics and psychology, that was basically the kind of four areas that I looked at. But what we spoke about before, I had to then make the connection of um, how that translated into PE teaching and how I could um, show my students how to use it, because you're quite right. I mean, it's, it's very divorced normally from what we do, that subject knowledge is quite divorced from what we actually do in PE. So, for example, biomechanics, I was able to use projectile motion, and when I did uh, the biomechanics unit as part of my graduate certificate, I was able to identify quite quickly that projectile motion was something I could bring into athletics teaching. And, you know, you spoke earlier about how some of your student teachers uh, find biomechanical concepts uh, challenging. I mean, I agree with that as well, but there's, there's some things you can apply very simply. And even in the primary school PE teaching, some of that uh, stuff about using forces and applying forces and what it does to implements and so on. And I, I think when you use improvised, implements in your athletics teaching and bringing in a safety perspective in a holistic way. That's where I could um, realise that kind of learning. But one of the things which is quite exciting, I think, is um, through the graduate certificate, and it wasn't a planned um, 
a planned aspect of doing that course, but it was an outplanned, unplanned outcome. Was was able to identify Dr. Michael Davis as someone who could um, come over to our uh, Faculty of Education, potentially, and, and be able to uh, have that rich and deep knowledge about human movement um, that he could uh, bring in and, and actually progress to what I started off. And, and, and as a result, that's why it ended up happening. And, you know, uh, Michael's going from uh, strength to strength and really engaging in, in the environment. Uh, as a former human movement scientist, so I, I think I think um, I've realised a lot and, and gained a lot from uh, doing the grad certificate. More, um, not just the content knowledge that I expected to get from it, but you know, learning about how other people teach and also identifying someone who could make a, a very strong contribution to the health and PE team yeah. um, in our faculty as well. So, were there kind of other unintended? Co- unintended consequences that resulted in you going through this process and re-enrolling going through the their units? Um, yeah, un- unintended ones were the, the ones kind of mentioned there about um, about the fact that um, you know, learning, learning um, like actual pedagogy that other people uh, use and uh, non-teachers as well, so the people who um, teach the the human movement content for the graduate certificate. They're not they're not a secondary school or, or teacher qualified. Um, other than some of them have done a um, a teaching higher education certificate, that kind of thing. And it was really interesting. Yeah, an interesting point with that is um, again this this was wasn't something I considered was by immersing myself um, in the way that I did. Um, I got a richer professional learning, a bit like a ethnographic type approach where you're immersing yourself in the in the research long term. Um, so from that, I was able to to really get a really deep sense of how people uh, taught in a way that you don't get in any other way. I would um, suggest there are very few ways. So for example, you, and I talk about this in the paper, you could go to a conference to learn about, say, game sense or tactical games understanding or TPSR or something like that, and you'll get a snippet of what that is about. Um, you're there for a day, you're there for two days, and when you come back to work, I'm sure you can relate to it, Bristol, as, as other people may be listening, you're very excited about what it is you've learned about, and you're very motivated to do something with it, but before you know it, you've forgotten about it because the pressures of your day-to-day work take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas we're doing this grad cert over two years part-time, I was immersed in that, and I think there's probably more likelihood that loan practice changed as a result of that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, your paper was great because it, it kind of made me start thinking about what would be, because we have the option at Mason, I can enroll in any course and they'll just pay the tuition for it, but it's, it's again, like you said, it's it's adding something on top of what you're doing already. But I look at, you know, qualitative methods that I took in 2013, kind of outdated, you know, like there's so much that has changed and there's so many more papers that have come out and so many different paradigms and different ideas. And, you know, the people who, you know, the philosophers that, you know, people are citing and talking about. I didn't take that class. And so we have all these classes offered and I like that your your paper has kind of motivated me to really consider going back and maybe not doing the four, but maybe starting with one and doing something 
because it is different than going to a conference. In a conference, you get that small bit and and assuming that you're just going to go in and read all of the papers that that person cited, then you could get that full experience. But there are opportunities out there for, for us to gain professional learning. And, and I think your, your paper was great in talking about what it is like as a mature student to go in uh, into these classes. So um, really, really appreciate your time. And, and thanks, for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, thanks Alex. We finish off. Yeah. That, um, yeah, it was um, one of the unplanned outcomes, I guess, was the paper. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the grad there with the intention of having a paper from it. So there's there's this whole thing about, and this is again trying to get our students to think this way. I think it's very hard for them because all they think about, or speaking very generally about, all they think about, it seems to be is just passing a degree. They don't, they don't see themselves as these agents of change, but the fact is that we need to be continually learning to stay on top of our game, what, what you just said there. and you know, I think one of the final things I would say about this is that uh, the more I read um, about figurational sociology as well is that, you know, we need to um, do more about that facilitator and, you know, try and change um, his, um, figurational sociology about linking the past to the present. But the, the past in our subject here is very much about uh, the teacher as a, an expert and um, I'll show you how to, you know, throw a javelin or whatever it is and, and you'll copy me and, and they'll look to you as the expert and look to you to tell them what they're not doing right and how they can improve. But in fact, we do need to be detaching ourselves. And Elias spoke of this like, uh, last century about the fact that, you know, we should be facilitating, um, we should be facilitators rather than uh, this is how you do it, now you copy me. And I think that's what does come through a lot of those models of instruction as well. Um, about uh, shifting things to be, uh, shifting the focus to be centered. So, yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's, it's like a very interesting uh, journey. And I, I really appreciate you bringing me on the show again. I, I love talking to you about about our work. It's great. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, for those who want to read the full article, you can check out the full citation in the comments section. Uh, thank you again for coming on. Um, and I also want to thank uh, Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. And uh, that's all we got for, uh, for this episode. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. All the best. Cheers. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.